What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Off the Dome Radio. Today, we sit down with Nick Carter, who is co-founder and CEO of Market Wagon. Now, Market Wagon is an online marketplace that connects food consumers directly to their local farmer. So really improving that relationship from farm to table. Nick started his first business at the age of 16, so one might call him a serial entrepreneur. It is in his blood. In the last two decades since then, he has founded or co-founded at least half a dozen different companies in technology and the food sector. Nick is also a fourth-generation Indiana farmer who is very passionate about using his innovation and his tech to reconnect the farming to our consumers. Nick is also the author of More Than a Mile, What America Needs from Local Food, so be sure to go check that out. And in this interview, Nick goes through the concept behind his business. We get through his background, his history, his other businesses, as well as the alternative solutions uh, to farmers and improving that relationship, but also improving farming as a whole. Now, you can check him out at marketwagon.com. Spell it out exactly how you sound it out, marketwagon.com. And in the show, we start off with talking about Nick's background, why he started the business, what really motivated him to do so, and you know what growing up on a farm kind of taught him about being an entrepreneur. Uh, then we get into you know his entre- entrepreneurial skills. We go through his lessons learned uh, from his prior endeavors and kind of all the stepping stones that got him to Market Wagon. And then we go through how Market Wagon is the solution from farm to grocery, and we get a lot of good info and insight into things within that sector that we really did not understand until Nick brought that to our attention. So, uh, Tim, I know you kind of really facilitated setting this interview up. Um, I didn't know who Nick was, didn't know what Market Wagon was, but this was a fantastic interview. Uh, what do you think of our discussion here? Yeah, I thought this was a really awesome interview. Um, I, I learned a lot about agriculture and um, to just the, the really awesome concept behind his business. Um, I think no matter like what type of professional you are, like whether you own your own business or not, like this is a very insightful interview that, that gives you um, a lot of information about like how food goes from like from the ground into our mouths and I, I really thought when Nick was talking about how the farmer is the mediator between us and the food in the soil mm-hmm. that that really uh, that really hit home and that, that really like put things into into perspective so uh, yeah we, we asked Nick about like the scaling process behind his business um, and amid the pandemic his business grew extremely quickly in just a matter of weeks and I know now they have over 2,500 farmers that are on their online market wagon network and they're in uh, 30 different markets and 19 states so he talks about like how they kind of used a game plan and a formula to, to, to execute that scaling strategy and um, I, I thought that was a really cool part of the interview and then we also asked Nick about the biggest hurdles he had to overcome when starting Market Wagon and um, we talked about the different alternative ways that we can farm and um, kind of gives his thoughts and his ideas on how we can keep incentives high and diversify incentives for farmers. So uh, he also talked about regenerative, regenerative agriculture, which I didn't even know what that was before this interview, but now I do. And I it's, couldn't it's, find the words. Yeah, he got there for me. Extremely like, cool Dude, concept there is this one well. type of farming. He's like, oh, yeah. is it this? I'm like, yeah, that's it. Yeah, so I, I thought that was cool learning about that. And then um, also Nick talks about how, like, with his business, with Market Wagon, how they're really educating people who – maybe not may not know much about farming and how they kind of build that relationship mm-hmm. between these farmers these online vendors and people like us um, the consumer so and then kind of in the interview he talks about his motivation to write his book um, 
what and then how that kind of fed into his podcast that he started. I thought that was cool learning about that. Um, and then he also talks about how he wants to be remembered. So, like I said, I mean, whether you're a business owner, uh, whether you're just a, a professional who, who hasn't started a business yet, maybe thinking about it. I just thought it was cool learning about his business, but beyond that, just learning everything about agriculture and, and farming, I, th- I thought he had a lot of good things to share. And I, I know you guys are going to love this interview from beginning to end. So without further ado, episode 172, Nick Carter. So yeah, man, for um, for people listening that might not know, I, I know that I wasn't aware of Market Wagon and uh, I was reading about it. I was like, oh, this pretty cool concept didn't know this existed so nick maybe intro yourself uh kind of who you are what you do how we got here and we'll kind of go from there yeah um well market wagon is an online farmer's market that delivers i'm the ceo and co-founder i started it uh, in 2016 and um, we've been growing it here in indianapolis from ever since then and then in the pandemic um, we had scaled to six cities we were in mm-hmm. indy a couple other smaller towns in indiana and then columbus ohio and southwest ohio like dayton Cincinnati. Okay. and then in march 2020 the world changed so we went from six cities to 36 in about a year <laughs> and wow it was a wild ride that's that scale up was wild, but it was just to meet a need you know i mean yeah farmers markets were closed uh small restaurants who a lot of times will patronize uh, like local Growers and, and uh, farmers, those, those chefs didn't have their doors open, so mm-hmm. the local farmers were just decimated. So we uh, we saw the need and we just got to moving. Yeah, yeah, good deal. So six to thirty six. How do you scale like that? Well, it takes a lot of <laughs> capital. We did we raised venture capital, okay. um, and we were very fortunate to have the backing of some uh, investors in Chicago that believed in us. We raised a little over ten million dollars, and um, but from an operational standpoint, it's really hard. And and I mean. I was the CEO of a company of five people, and now it's over 60. And so just the organizational layers, the leadership challenges, the cultural challenges, it's been it's it's a wild ride. And I, I couldn't even tell you that I've, I've figured it out. But you've got to put, um, the very first thing I did was I put other leaders in place. You can't scale it up from the bottom up. I had to get other people to own business units. You know, we put a suite of six VPs in place, finance and admin, marketing, marketplace development, tech, um, and operations, and and then trust them, you know, and let them grow their organizations because I couldn't do it all by myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. And are you, I mean, e-commerce company at the same time, but are you guys have like a, a, lo- a physical location or is everyone kind of remote right now or? Uh, no, we do have a physical location. Um, uh, and, each of those 36 cities. Okay. So what we do is very unique. There's a lot of marketplaces and, and there's people in the local food space that have built websites or website technology and uh, and to let farmers sell their stuff online. But if you're not doing logistics, then you're not doing e-commerce. Mm-hmm. And food logistics is the most complex logistics there is. So these software companies that say, here you go, Mr. Farmer, here's your website. You can take orders online. And the farmer's like, great. What next? It's not like you can UPS a head of lettuce. (laughs) So uh, we actually developed not only the e-commerce side, but all the custom software and proprietary systems and methodologies for handling our uh, logistics. So everywhere we're at, we have a physical fulfillment hub, and we do all of the the last mile delivery to the door for the producers for what they've sold. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's... So aside from... 
So how do you navigate? You said you can't do a head of lettuce on UPS truck. Someone might be listening. Oh, why can't I do that? Like yeah. I send it to grandma all the time. Um, <laughs> what else was really going into figuring that piece out? Because I think a lot of people think, oh, I'll start an e-com, I'll start a Shopify, and I just basically drop ship. Yeah. So what else do you guys have to do differently when you're dealing with food to make sure that you know something doesn't spoil and X, Y, Z, things like that? Yeah, drop shipping is fantastic. If you're selling sunglasses or clothes or stickers, that's great. Electronics. <laughs> um, but uh, the biggest thing is it's temperature, just like you talked about. We use both temperature. We use ice packs as well as just the constraint of time. So everything has to happen very quickly. We don't want it to sit in the truck for very long. So the way we actually work is everything that arrives at our, our fulfillment center um, in one day, and it arrives in the morning and it's at the customer's doorstep that afternoon. Okay. So we constrain the time so there's not enough time for anything to get outside of, of what's called the, the danger zone, right? Um, for more than two hours above 42 degrees and you've got a problem, or above got 41 it. degrees Fahrenheit. So, um, there's a lot of algorithms. There's a lot of equations around knowing what the temperature of the items are arriving, how many ice packs it's going to take to hold it where it needs to hold it. There's temperature segregation. You don't want to put fresh baked bread right out of the oven in an insulated cooler next to milk. It will, it will have a degrading effect on the yeah. temperature of that milk. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to know all of those things. And then um, our software divides everything out into different totes. It's called, the, the logistical term is called cartonization. We have cartonization mm. algorithms that put things in the right temperature zones and separate things that need to be separated. And, um, and then also decides how many ice packs are going to be required in order to do what it needs to do. We've, we've had years of research on the thermodynamics and put it all together. So if you want to get into food sales, think about it a few times. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. In my case, it was partnering with the right guy. So Dan Bruner is my co-founder and okay. he's a logistics engineer with an MBA and the last gig that he had before he and I found each other at an entrepreneurial event in Indianapolis and started this company together, he was with a, a company called Kiva Robotics, which was doing partnerization and last mile logistics for Amazon and oh. was eventually acquired by Amazon. Good guy to have on your yeah. team. Yeah. Find, find the expert. Yeah. Find one the expert. One still makes two. Yeah. Right. I don't want to sit here in front of this microphone and make it sound like I knew all of these things. I just found a guy <laughs> yeah. who knew all of these things. Yeah. He made me look smart. Yeah, yeah, that's good. So, and you, you can't, you're a fourth generation farmer. Like you've, you've, I mean, you've been around it. What, and have you all, like always had the entrepreneurial spirit? Like, have you, it sounds like you found a lot of businesses. Where did you get that from your family? Like, how did that, when did that come about? Yeah. Farming uh, and entrepreneurship just go hand in hand. Yeah. Um, I would have been the fourth generation on that land uh, mm -hmm. where I grew up. I don't know how many generations back I'm a farmer. I mean, going yeah. all the way back to when we came over from Ireland, and I'm sure that we farmed potatoes in Ireland. I don't know. Yeah. But growing up as a farmer, um, I think the biggest thing is problem solving. Mm -hmm. You know, you you have to figure out how to solve problems creatively with scarce resources when you're on a farm. Mm -hmm. the, the, you know, there's always a running joke that, of bailing wire and duct tape you know there's a lot of equipment on the farm that we fix with very scarce resources <laughs> yeah you just have to you know we owned a, a, a welder you own an acetylene torch you own all kinds of tools and you make it run Got mm -hmm. it. that kind of problem solving is what you need in business you yeah. know open nobody opens a business in day one the original plan worked mm -hmm. you open a business just to figure out what's the first problem you're gonna have to solve mm -hmm. what's the first part of your plan that was based on failed assumptions or isn't gonna pan out the way you thought it was and you have to be adaptive and keep correcting and keep working. Mm -hmm. and the same, I just learned that on the farm. Yeah. 
Yeah, and then beyond that, like before you started Market Wagon, you've started multiple businesses before this, right? Yeah, people could call me a serial entrepreneur. Okay, it's, I don't know if it's a positive or a negative, but yeah. No, that's. Uh, <laughs> I, think it, I think in your case, it's working out, so it's yeah. positive. Yeah, yeah. 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 It's, well, we we just we just put out the highlight reel. We don't talk about the ones that didn't work. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say. So problem solving. I mean, anything else from your your previous endeavors that allowed you to be successful in this role? For sure. Uh, the tech side. Mm-hmm. So I left the farm when I was 18 because I thought that there's not a future for me in, in agriculture. Mm-hmm. And uh, I college dropout, moved to the big city of Indianapolis, got involved in uh, the tech scene here. And I, I had my own tech startup called Address2, which was a CRM software that I built myself. Okay. Um, so I'm a self-taught software engineer. And I had enough success at that that I could decide what I was passionate about. So Market yeah. Wagon is a business of passion. Right. But what goes into it is all of the knowledge that I had amassed in my first 10 years in business of entrepreneurship, financing, but also the software tech. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was the, I had the ability to build our, our first tech stack mm-hmm. and go to market with a, mm-hmm. you know, a first release that was viable and, and solved problems. So it was just this great confluence of what seems to be not applicable to farming at all or to food software engineering and, e-commerce and logistics coming from Dan, my co-founder, and you put those things together. And that's what, that's what the local food movement needed was, mm-hmm. was amazing technology and logistics to be able to pull it off. Mm-hmm. It's funny how things come full circle. You didn't think there's much for you on the farm. Yeah. And we come back around and here you are helping out agriculture and, and, and the and family farm life. that I grew up on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So Dad now raises uh, beef and pork that we sell on Market Wagon. And uh, the goal is to build a viable enterprise out of that direct-to-consumer marketing there on that farm so that um, when my kids are ready to decide what they want to do or my nieces or other people that are in our family, mm-hmm. um, running the, the Carter family farm may be a viable option as it wasn't when I was a teenager. Yeah, interesting. So how did you start <clears throat> excuse me, going about learning software engineering? self? People self-teach them. So yeah. like, you know, whatever, this type of digital marketing, this and that. I feel like that's such a different thing to try to learn on your own. It'd be like me trying to learn how to do surgery. <laughs> like, uh, you, you'd so, need a lot of cadavers yeah, and, and right. willing subjects. Uh, how, what was your process like learning that? Um, well, yeah, it, yeah, how did how did you go about it? It probably is the same as learning surgery. It's just a, a much lower cost of failure. <laughs> right? Fair enough. It, it's trial and error. Yeah. Um, Back in the day, for me, it was uh, a language called ASP Classic. I mean, and there are more today, but you can go online and you can find free scripts. You could go to GitHub and you can download free open source software hmm. that does one thing or another. And I remember the very first one I, I did, it was an auction website, uh, bidding, kind of like a, a build your own sort of PayPal. And I didn't want to build it any auction i just downloaded it to see how it worked i'm the kind of guy that would take apart a power drill to see how it works like mm. what what's going on inside here so i took it apart and started making changes and just you know if i change this what happens and oh fatal error okay <laughs> that's that, but that doesn't kill anybody like surgery would uh so you just keep trial and error and then you go okay well if i want to make um a, a address two as a crm if i want to search contacts by first name how would i do that what would i pass through what would be the inputs what would i and it was just a lot of trial and error sure. until I figured it out and um, building on that for years and years and years. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome. I love when people are, hey, I taught myself how to do this. 
you know, a, a curvy way of getting to where they got. Like those yeah. are my favorite. Mm-hmm. The reality is I'm a very bad student. I'm, a, I'm an atypical learner. I don't do well in a traditional classroom, which is why I was a college dropout. It doesn't mean I'm dumb, but I just learn in a different way. And, and I think people really need to understand how they learn. Mm-hmm. Everybody learns differently. And I learn by doing I just, I need to get my hands dirty. I need to, to, you know, have the space to fail over and over and over again. And then every single time I do, I'll figure out what went wrong. And 10 years later, I'll be a software engineer. And it's great. (laughs) (laughs) Just like that. That overnight success that everyone's always talking about. (laughs) And so you, you had the the CRM company that you founded. When, uh, when did you come into e-commerce? Like when did you start putting into practice for e-commerce? Yeah, that's an interesting question. E-commerce is, um, in my opinion, it's it's not some beast unto itself. Mm-hmm. It, it's commerce. Yeah, I mean, we've been selling things forever. Right. Um, just backed with technology. It, it's done online versus merchandising in the store. But so to answer your question about when did I get into e-commerce, it was with Market Wagon. I mm-hmm. hadn't built an e-commerce okay. business before Market Wagon, but that didn't intimidate me because I I had done retail. I actually. Uh, dabbling in food trying to figure out what it would look like for me to get back into agriculture i got involved in uh, a small chain of butcher shops around indianapolis mm-hmm. um, i started a food manufacturing business that was selling into marsh at the time and kroger and whole foods so i was learning about retail food mm-hmm. merchandising um, uh, stock outs and pricing and promotion and e-commerce is a lot of the same things apply mm-hmm. it's just it's a different storefront yeah, it's it's pixels and it's screen real estate instead of store real estate. Mm-hmm. But man, deciding what product goes above the fold on the homepage is just like deciding where to put the milk in mm-hmm. the floor plan of your grocery store, uh, and a lot of the same decisions go into it. So my background in in I I eventually finished a degree in marketing. So I, okay. I, if okay. I have any marketable skill, it's marketing. So background in marketing and software, those things kind of met together pretty yeah, similarly. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So what were, I know you said you had a tech firm. Uh, what were some other things, other startups, companies you got into that kind of so, stepped your way into, into Market Wagon? Uh, dropped out of college, moved to Indy, started a company called Carter & Company LLC, which was a marketing consulting business. Okay. Um, I had one client who needed a CRM, and this was before uh, Google Contacts was free. This was in the era of you could either get Act, Goldmine, or Salesforce.com. And so I built a very simple CRM for him because I had been hacking and, and kind of teaching myself code. And that eventually became Address 2. Um, then Twitter came out. And Oprah talked about Twitter on one of her shows, and it exploded. And I created an ad platform on Twitter. You could sell uh, ad space. It was a, a marketplace for people to, to get paid to tweet. Oh, wow. I, I launched it built it and sold it within 60 days Jeez. and a year later because twitter was just on a, on a wave a year later twitter banned all third-party ad platforms so better to be lucky than good yeah um, yeah that was good timing it was and then um i partnered with uh some a, a gentleman in indianapolis who was brokering mulch delivered to your door and we built a website that found the cheapest price mulch um, from a whole bunch of different bidders around Indy and uh, would deliver it to your door. And then um, then that's when I was really just, oh, well, then my twins were born and, and life went crazy for a couple of years. <laughs> and coming out of that fog is when I was like, well, other people are running address too for me. And I don't just want to keep proliferating websites and software ideas. It's not uh-huh. fun. Um, and what do I want to do? Well, 
I think it's unjust and unfair the way that family farms like us, like ours, had been uh, dealt kind of a raw deal by the by really national policies around food that emerged in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And I want to reverse that. And that's when I started um, tinkering in food startups. So my first one was called Meet the Rabbit, M-E-A-A-T. We sold rabbit meat to chefs. Uh, that was fun. It just got me into the industry and yeah. to learn, the, learn the players. Yeah. So really, I, I learned the food startup scene like I did software. It, you know, I wasn't downloading scripts, but it was like, well, I'm going to start a company that sells some kind of food. Are you going to raise the rabbits? No, I don't know how to raise rabbits. Are you going to butcher them and, and turn them into meat? No, I'm going to contract. Basically, I contracted to farmers, and then I contracted to a butcher, and then I contracted to a distributor, and I don't really know what I did, but I created a company <laughs> where I got to know people in the food scene. Yeah. And then we started Husk, which was a food manufacturing business, and a complete failure. Utter and total failure and by every stretch of the imagination. Uh, and out of the ashes of that, we said, well, apparently getting local farmers' stuff into grocery stores is not the solution. And we built Market Wagon instead oh. to go direct. Okay. And what was it about going from farm to grocery that posed a problem? Yeah. Let's see if I can get that down to under two hours. <laughs> well, um, so first you have to understand the problem that we were solving. The problem was... The motto of the USDA in the 70s and 80s was get big or get out. The, the belief was we wanted big, huge industrial scale farms that, and that would produce cheap food. So it's, it created a boom and bust cycle um, uh, as when the government gets involved in any industry, it does. So many people were granted government-backed loans in order to finance the expansion of their farm. Um, if they defaulted on those and they went bankrupt and the next biggest farmer got to buy up all of their stuff for pennies on the dollar, so this boom and bust created a whole bunch of consolidation um, to where today we are declining in the number of farmers who are farming the same number of acres. So they're just consolidating. Mm. Well, the supermarket system that we, we have come to love today emerged around the same time. Go figure. Right. They, they started making bigger and bigger and bigger, you know, Walmart super centers and, and Kroger super centers where all this incredibly cheap food could all be found under one roof. And it's coming from this consolidated centralized supply chain. So what supermarkets were doing is called vendor consolidation. They want to write as few checks as possible to get all fill their shelves from as few a suppliers as possible. And while um, it looks like there's a diversity of options in the supermarket, they're all controlled by just a few major conglomerates. Huh. Okay. I mean, anytime something goes really well, uh, a food startup, your best hope is to get acquired by... Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, and PepsiCo owns Fritos and all these other places, you know, these brands that you have no idea are related to them. Right. Um, and General Mills and things like that. So then what happened is, the, so the, the problem we were trying to solve, you're not going to solve that problem by, uh, on the agriculture side, by trying to partner up with part of the problem, which is the supermarkets, where they're completely focused on, on consolidation. Um, so a few of them would carry our products but only, only because their consumers told them that they wanted it, but they really didn't want us there. They didn't want to deal with okay. a small local regional supplier of food. They wanted to have giant distributors aggregating all the food for them, showing up in one truck and keep it simple for them. And so um, in order to solve this problem, we had to go direct to the consumer. So we built a channel called Market Wagon where consumers can connect directly with the producers that are 
that are growing their food. Yeah. And the exact opposite is true for us, meaning we want as many different producers as possible. We, we go very, very broad. If, if we quadrupled the demand for eggs on Market Wagon today, we wouldn't go to one farmer and say, have quadruple the number of hens. We would find quadruple the number of farmers. Yeah. And how many do you have right now? Network-wide, there's over 2,000 farmers and food artisans on the platform. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So what did that process look like of gaining that amount and onboarding them? What, what did that look like? One at a time. Okay. It's, that side is really, it's a B2B sales process, right? You've got to convince producers to do something new that they've not heard of before. Mm. It's kind of like a farmer's market, but you don't have to go set up a booth and everything that you bring is already going to be sold. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very easy to start a company in your own backyard. It's one yeah. of the things I learned. So I had a network, I had friends, I had business connections in Indianapolis, and we were off the ground and running pretty quickly in Indy. Um, where we had to really turn that, the vendor recruitment side into a, a real process that could be scaled was when we started to go into other cities where people say, Nick Carter, who's Nick Carter? I've never heard of Nick Carter. I don't know what you do. I don't know about the history of Husk. I've not seen you at food events around town. I've not met you at the Indiana Farm Bureau conventions. So we had to processize it. and. Um, it's just a matter of kind of gold mining, building your prospect list. Who mm-hmm. are the local food producers? And you can find them on Craigslist. They're the guys on Craigslist listing freezer beef. That's, <laughs> that, that's the farm that we want. That's the farm we want. Yeah. You know, they're, they're at farmer's markets. They have roadside stands. Yeah. And you contact mm-hmm. them and say, do you want another channel? And most of them say, heck yeah. They need yeah. to get their food out there. Yeah. Was that the biggest objection is that they just didn't know, they they didn't really know who you were, what the brand was? No, there's no, there, that wasn't the biggest objection. The biggest okay. objection is honestly the revenue share. Okay. So uh, a lot of, of those small scale producers have not built their um, economics on their business to work through indirect sales. Okay. So their whole um, gross margin and, and economics are built around the idea that they're going to keep 100% of the retail dollar because they're going to sell it off the bed of their pickup truck and then mm-hmm. they don't value their own time. Mm. So that... The, the cost of sales to them is perceived to be free because they don't value their own time. Mm, got it. So when we say, yeah, we, we work on a revenue share, they're like, well, I, you know, uh, are you free? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But okay. farmer's market vendors who have scaled up somewhat, meaning they're at uh, two or three farmer's markets, well, then they suddenly had to figure out, all right, well, I have to pay somebody an hourly wage who's going to come uh, set up a booth and man the stands. And then they start to understand the cost of those sales. Yeah. And that's where... It makes total sense. Mm-hmm. Very easy for them to understand what we do. Okay. Gotcha. And then on the other side of it, I'm sure this, I mean, you said you hired a VP of marketing and mm-hmm. VP team. In terms of like promoting it and bring it to the customer side of it, like what did you guys do to, to go about and boosting awareness for it? Oh, man. Well, that is one that's currently in flux. Okay. So for five years, we um, repeatedly had success with a, a digital ads campaign it was built on facebook okay uh facebook ads platform is is lead it's number one in the industry really mm-hmm. um and we were able to convert customers economically by paying for facebook ads and some percentage of them would come to the landing page and some percentage of those would give us their email address and some percentage of those would buy and the, the economics worked out yeah up until april of this year have you guys heard of ios 14 when Apple and Facebook got into a little bit of a lover's spat, and Apple yeah, decided that on all of their devices, they weren't going to allow the tracking anymore. And Facebook ads just disintegrated. Huh. Um, the, nobody in, in e-commerce or in digital ads today is able to get the performance that we once relied on out of digital ads. And what I realized 
uh, when we saw that coming is basically marketing is going to go back 10 years. Uh, we used to look at impressions and, uh, and conversions, and we would think that way. Facebook made it very easy to get to just laser focus your ad right in front of the exact person that they knew would be interested in buying it because they were stalking you everywhere. <laughs> and when that went away, we had to, we had to you know, go back to our roots mm -hmm. and, and get good at um, old-fashioned marketing again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we're still working on that. Okay. Yeah, it's been a challenge for sure. We're getting it figured out, but it's been a real challenge. Gotcha. Well, because Facebook started, they started taking away certain aspects of those ads. Because I remember trying to do one as a few years ago. You used to be able to target um, income yeah. ranges. Then yeah. they took that away. Mm -hmm. So slowly they started removing certain things. Because to your point, it was like to the office that they had in the building pretty much. Yeah. You could you could hit them up. So now are you guys just focused on just content posts, socials like Facebook, Instagram? How are you kind of not rebranding but marketing differently in order to pivot with the changes? Um, a lot more content, and then you you let the so we go with with broad marketing about our message. There's a certain consumer who's interested in what we bring to the table, which is direct connection to the the local producer. So we produce content like that. And then we put that out to a broad audience as inexpensively as we possibly can. Um, and anybody who clicks or, or engages goes further with that, that's our audience. That's who we want, that, that's, that's more likely to, to buy from us. Then we can start spending a little bit more money getting a more direct response ad in front of that audience and then move them on down the funnel. You know, Maybe if they add something to cart or if they subscribe with email but then they don't convert, well now we're gonna get even more aggressive because we know that you're interested. Um, this is this is the stuff we did ten years ago, and yeah. then with, with Facebook, we, everybody just kind of got used to well, just set it up and it'll go. Yeah, yeah. their algorithm. We don't. Nobody knew what it did, but man, it worked <laughs> until it didn't. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> gotcha. And then, like going back to the the scaling aspect. So obviously, you had to ramp things up because of the pandemic. Is there anything specific that you like had on the back burner um, that you brought brought forward? Like anything that was really pivotal for you, and uh, something that you learned from that. Yeah, we were, it was so fortuitous. We were at the right place with just the right playbook. So we had been building Market Wagon to scale. We, we knew we were going to go out and try to raise venture funds from the yeah. beginning. We knew we were going to be in multi-locations. And we knew one of the, the secrets to that was going to be building a playbook for launching a hub. You know, the whole, everything. Finding the vendor base, finding the location, getting the permits through the local health departments. Um Acquiring customers, hiring uh, a local hub coordinator, attracting a driver pool, um, the whole gamut of everything that has to happen to go live. We had fine-tuned that down. We had opened six locations, and every time we got faster and smarter about what it looked like, we were basically mm -hmm. trying to um, get efficiency on that playbook of launch. Mm -hmm. We had it down to a six-week project by the time, and, and then March hit at, of, of 2020, and uh, we our business grew 600% in two weeks. Wow. We bought out every Menards in the entire region of all of their garage racking because that's what we use to, to organize our, our shelves for order aggregation. Um, we bought every uh, insulated grocery tote this side of the Mississippi. Um, <laughs> we had bought out, like we just, we, we vacuumed up the whole supply chain of all these things that yeah. we needed to scale because it just went huge in a heartbeat. Once we caught our breath, it took about 45 days, uh, to my exhausted, ragged, small team at the time, I said, 
okay, how many more of these can we open and how fast? Yeah. And they looked at me like I was crazy. Um, but the reality is we had this playbook ready to go. It's yeah. just, it was just rinse and repeat. We had been, we had been preparing for that day and we didn't even know it. Yeah. And so we had the, the confidence of some investors in Chicago. They said, what's it going to take? And we gave them a number and we were under, we were wrong. We needed even more. And the next time they came back with even more, we opened, uh, we just started opening. We were opening like four or five a month. We were clipping them off. We had teams out there and they just signing leases, getting permits, getting people hired because it all worked. Yeah. Outside of stressful, what's that feel like when you see it all works? Like, oh shit, this is, it's working. Like, you know. <laughs> Uh, there's early on, I'll be, I'll be really honest early on. I had a little bit of a hero complex. Like I thought that, that I was, uh, that, um, I, I thought a little too much of myself. Like, wow, this is amazing. Look at what I built. And in honestly, we were just at the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. It had nothing to do with, you know, any of our skill or even brilliance. We didn't see this coming. We thought we were going to be opening four or five a year over the course of the next five years. That's what our plan showed. Um, but I, I think the only thing that it is a testament to is just preparedness. That you, it, Sometimes you just have to be ready when your number's called. And we, we happen to be. Yeah, that's one thing my dad, no matter what it was, it was usually tailored to sports. You know, like most prepared person always wins. Yeah. Or like a meeting, it was most prepared wins. Yeah. No matter the scenario, and it's... Now I start to see that trying to build build things. When people are like, "Oh man, you got lucky," it's like, "Well, like mm-hmm. you weren't lucky. You were working towards it already and fine tuning this process down to six weeks." Yeah. It's like, "Okay, we we got this down," and then boom, something happens. It's like, "Well, good thing we were working on this." Right. Now Jim, that prep meets opportunity type deal. Exactly. Prep meets opportunity. Jim Jim Lencioni talks about uh, instead of return on investment, uh, return on luck. Uh, that. Okay that the the idea that you have to to recognize when you just got lucky but then capitalize you go okay fine so the luck has hit how far can we push it Do what it, can yeah. we make out of this the the iron is hot it's time to go open as many hubs as you possibly can yeah. and so we went from 2 million in annual revenue to 8 million to 16 million yeah. that's incredible <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> it was a ride Jesus, yeah man yeah that's amazing and is in terms of like other like competitors, is any like is anybody else doing this that you've like had your like monitoring and like studying or like anything that you've learned from the competition? And in terms of like like does like can you go on to Amazon and like type in like any like farm product you want? Like how is that different than what you're doing? Yeah, well, you can't go on Amazon and get. Okay, you know, I haven't tried I mean, myself. So if you live within a certain radius of a Whole Foods, you can get Amazon Whole Foods, right? An Amazon Pantry or something like that. But it's not going to be anything local. It's going to have come off that same consolidated truck that I talked about. Gotcha. Even the organic movement is consolidated and centralized. Okay, they're just centralized as an organic supplier instead of as conventional. But it's okay. all a conglomerate kind of a uh, deal. Okay. So, but there are competitors, and there. That's the other thing is that the because of the success that we had. And a few others like us, and, and just seeing the opportunity, uh, they're they're coming out of the woodworks now. But uh, we keep our eye on them. You know, I, we're not uh, in, like a tortoise and hare sort of a situation. We, we don't rest on our laurels. Uh-huh. However, so far, what we've seen has been a lot of the same thing that we talked about before: pure tech offerings. Nobody is bold enough to try and create the logistics system that it would take that we've created 
in order to um, provide the last mile delivery and fulfillment on these orders. So they leave the farmers to their own devices, and that's mm -hmm. the most complex problem. You know, my nephew could build a website for me and that, that I can transact. It may not mm. be the most magnificent e-commerce creation in the world, but with Shopify or WooCommerce and some of the tools out there today, it's really democratized e-commerce. But the real barrier for local food purveyors is the logistics. Wow. And that's where the Dan, you said, the, mm -hmm. the cover, that's kind of where he came into play. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you have the concept of Market Wagon like all laid out before you met him? or like mm -hmm. I had the concept. I was pitching it at a... Uh, it was a, an event in Indianapolis called Verge. It was an okay. uh, entrepreneurial pitch event Matt Hunkler uh, hosted. And I pitched this idea, and this this uh, uh, older guy pulled me aside afterwards and was basically grilling me on, on how the economics of the last mile could possibly work, and it, it can't work. His his premise was that you can't possibly do this and make, make money on it. And I said, well, come by. We had a pilot going. So come by, and, and let me show you how we're doing it. And he would say, he said that the innovative way that we were even doing the order aggregation at the time is, is kind of the, the, the spark that made this all take up, take off. Mm -hmm. But what I told him that day, I was like, look, don't be too impressed. I mean, we just packed like 26 orders. You know, this is, this is a small, small time and we will hit breakpoints. We, it will scale to a point where these methods won't work or won't scale. And I don't know where those are and you do. And that's why we got together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. I love that. Just inventing the tech to make it, make it work yeah. and it's funny we're having this conversation i was just in florida for a work trip and a guy had you know, different space different application but invented a tech to solve a massive problem with people in that industry and people just don't know it's out there now yeah. some of those people he's you know working with high-end companies wanting to, to be able to invent a different tech because what hasn't been created yet um so when you create something like that, how different is it? And again, I don't have any engineering experience or knowledge, but writing something like that, a brand new technology, how long did that take you? What's that like creating, creating something that has never been done? How long did it take me? I'll tell you when I'm done. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's always a work in progress. Um, the, you know, I, I'm not, I'm an inventor, but um, I stand on the shoulders of giants, right? I mean, I wasn't the first guy to come up with the idea of selling stuff online, and I'm certainly not the first guy right. to come up with the idea of doing last mile. Um, I just put multiple pieces together in the right way. Okay. Sometimes it's just a matter of organizing existing ideas in the right way. Okay. That is the secret sauce. You know, speaking like secret sauce, every sauce is made with the same ingredients that you guys could pick up in the spice aisle at Kroger. Yeah. Right. It's just putting together in the right way is what matters. I'm with you. So yeah. we had, I had been a member even of another online co-op that was trying to sell online and they didn't get very big and they always struggled to, to grit to critical mass. And, um, their model was pickup. You can order online and then come over here and pick it up once a week. And they never got to a, a large customer base. So that was one of the first things, you know, going into this is it's really looking around at other people who have gone before you and going, well, why didn't it work? We know that people will buy e-commerce groceries online. We know that we can deliver things. We know that people want convenience and just putting things together in the right way. Okay. Um, solve. I think you said it best, Colin, solve problems. You have to be trying to solve problems externally. Too many businesses and too many innovations are, are internal innovations. I'll talk about like the consolidation of, of food and agriculture, okay? 
consolidating all of our farms. It's not like consumers were asking the industry of agriculture to just bring them all a unif you know, uniform food from, from one farm um, as cheap as possible. That was an industry, like an, an, a completely introverted innovation. It didn't solve a problem for the consumer. It was, uh, it was really Earl Butts trying to solve a problem for his, his uh, exports, um, but that's a whole different topic. So uh, Earl Butts was the director of USDA in the 70s under the Nixon era. Okay. He wanted to win in a trade war with the USSR. So he made grain a, global, a nationalized industry. Um, but solve, thinking with the consumer first, who's my customer? What's their problem? Not my problem. What's mm. their problem? And solving for that, being yeah. relentless about solving that problem. Then, since we're on the topic of solving problems, you've been doing this long enough, creating businesses, not just Market Wagon, but with Market Wagon, were there, were there any things that came up where you know you try to foreshadow, all right, what could our bottleneck be here? What kind of problem might we run into? Was there something that came up where you, you kind of got stumped? Where just, wow, I, I did not see that a, as an issue or really didn't see that one coming. Thought I hedged my bet well enough on that one. Um, early on, for a, about a year and a half, actually. So we've been in business now almost six years. The first year and a half, we operated in Indiana only and under Indiana Food Code, uh, there's a definition of what a retail food establishment is, which requires a permit. And then it talks about delivery services uh, extra, extra to that, not being a retail food establishment. And I actually contacted the State Department of Health very early on and said, I just want to make sure I'm reading this right. And uh, her name was Dr. Krista Click. She was in charge of food safety for the state at the time. And she said, yeah, I agree. And we got to talking about our business model and the idea that I had. She thought it was really inventive and, and innovative. She invited me to be a speaker at their, their food safety summit. So all the regulators and health inspectors in Indiana were in, in Indianapolis for training. And I presented this idea there and talked about, you know, how it exists and how the, the existing food code really hasn't conceived of it. Well, that lasted for a year and a half. And then um, there was a health regulator, health inspector in one county in Northern Indiana that really did not like the idea that we weren't permitted. And um, pushed the fight all the way to the State Department of Health again, and that time with different leadership. And all of a sudden, overnight, we were told, no, no, all of your locations have to have a health permit or oh. you're violating the law. Jeez. Yeah. That's when you send a company email, who pissed off this one inspector <laughs> here? Who knows yeah. this guy from high school? <laughs> and then when we opened in Ohio, uh, we opened in the same way, and uh, we were like, you know, didn't need to have a permit. It's a whole new, whole new world over there. Uh, four months after we opened, they actually showed up with a cease and desist order and a oh sheriff. And I was like, gosh. oh, geez, didn't see that one coming. <laughs> so we've had to overcome a lot of regulatory hurdles because okay. we, you know, for better or for worse, laws don't change rapidly. Which is a, generally, I think people would agree that's a good thing. You don't want whiplash in laws. Right. But technology has been advancing much faster than our laws can. And the way that all of our food safety and food and health codes have been written didn't conceive of the internet or the idea of, of e-commerce. So we have to deal with that all the time now. We've gotten, at least now we're aware of it. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that was one that snuck up on us. Okay. Yeah, jeez. Hey, we're yeah. cool in Ohio. Yeah. <laughs> no, we're not cool in Ohio. Yeah. <laughs> What's Kentucky like? <clears throat> uh, oh, I had another question. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, we're, we're on laws. 
you mentioned earlier that, you know, in the 70s, 60s, 70s, 80s, they weren't conducive towards farming and mm. agriculture, things like that. If you were to change a law or two today, what would be, you know, whether politicians understand or realize it or not, what would be something that you could change without having negative effects on the economy or logistics that would really help farmers give kind of give them another leg to stand on to help them out? Because you said we're doing more food with less farmers or same amount with less. Yep. What law or laws would need to change to really help them out? We need to change the way that um, the subsidies for farmers are dispersed. And the it, it makes sense why we have it's, it's like price floors or something like that. You, you don't want, as a nation, farmers to say, you know, it really doesn't pan out for me to grow anything this year. I'm going to take the year off. <laughs> we can't let that happen. We'll all starve to death. But there's no ceiling anymore. So many farmers without, actually all of these large corporate corporate farms, without large checks coming from the government every year, subsidy checks, they, they're not viable businesses. Hmm. Uh, okay. And that doesn't happen overnight. These things take 30 years to wind up. And once you've wound that up, there's no way you could just go to Congress today and say, let's change that. Because it would be unfair to those businesses that have been, been built that way. You, you yeah. can't just pull the rug out from underneath them. But we need to start unwinding that. And um, finding a middle ground where, yes, we need to incentivize farmers to always grow the food that we need as a nation. But the problem is, is we subsidized corn and soy and wheat. So that so guess guess who grows spelt and barley anymore? Nobody. Okay, got it. Does that make sense? Tracking, yeah. Yeah. We then when we oversubsidized corn and soy, um, and then we figured out that we didn't actually need as much as farmers were growing because they started just growing corn and soy. Then uh, they were looking for another place to put it and, and something to do with it. And particularly the government was because they were guaranteeing that they would buy it. Yeah. <laughs> right? And then they're like, shoot, we got you know six years worth of corn in, in storage right now. What do we do with all of this stuff? Yeah. Um, that's when you started to see the rise of confinement feeding operations, confined animal feeding. Okay. Because if the corn was dirt cheap, if, if the corn cost what it should cost on the open market, it's not economical to put... 3,000 hogs under one barn and just shovel them full of corn and soy until they're fat enough to go to go to slaughter. Mm -hmm. But that's what we do because we've subsidized the corn. So now we've indirectly subsidized the meat market. Wow. Okay. Yes, it's all... You got to think about long-term yeah. effects. Yeah. So have you thought about what a solution could be to keep, uh, keep those incentives up for farmers or, you know, to not just keep going, growing, but growing other things that maybe they haven't grown before? How do you kind of Diversify the incentives. Um, one of the ideas that I had proposed in Indiana at one time was um, to actually tax some of those incentive payments that come federally into the state, put it into a fund at the state that can be used to underwrite the, uh, uh, the purchase of locally produced foods so we can build a more diversity among farmers. We need to incentivize Diver biodiversity on the farms, mm -hmm. rather than than um, corn, soy, um, beef, and pork, and but it, rather than that, just to incentivize more diversity. So the 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 more diversity you have on your farm, or the more commodities that you're growing, or the more channels that you're growing in, that's how you can amplify the insurance or the subsidy that you may be able to to earn. We've got to figure out ways to use some of these incentives to to get more diversity. Got it. Yeah. The other side of it would be um, applying the true cost 
of the environmental impact to producers. Uh, today, we've, in order to grow massive amounts of grain that we don't need, we've drained aquifers in most of the plain states. And um, if you guys heard of E. coli breakouts on lettuce? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So e-, e. coli doesn't grow on lettuce. E. coli grows in the gut of, an, of a cow. So you can do the math on how that gets on your lettuce. Yeah. Because yeah. we have so many cattle in confinement and their effluent is just a liquid sludge at that point. It's no longer a Excellent. manure that kind of like falls on the ground like deer droppings do in the woods and mm-hmm. then disintegrates on its own. They have these hundreds of thousands of gallons of liquid sludge effluent coming out of the backside of a cow. What am I going to do with it? Well, let's go put it on lettuce fields. Well, that hasn't mm. worked out all that well. Yeah. But it, the, the cost of some of these environmental impacts need yeah. to be realized by the businesses that are causing it. And that in and of itself will disincentivize some of the behaviors that we see them doing. Jeez. Mm. What a vicious cycle of just bad to worse. Yeah. And, and I got to be honest. I, I want to always make this clear. I don't villainize the farmers who have done it. They're making decisions that are the best decisions for their farm, given the, the way that the rules of the game have been set by the mm. USDA. So it, going outside of CAFOs and picketing or villainizing farms who have confined animal feeding operations is the wrong target and the wrong approach. And those farmers are doing the best that they can right. with what they've been given. We're, they're working within a broken system. And so you see people do broken things inside of broken systems. You've got to restore the system. It's a lot to get done. It is. Yeah. It's a big task. You going to run for office soon too? Not soon. No. Maybe someday. Yeah. yeah. Thought about it? <laughs> yeah, I can okay. see it. I've thought about it, but yeah. the, but the the wheels of government move really slowly. Mm. And as an entrepreneur, you get addicted to the idea that, you know, if I have an idea, I can start it. I can go do it. And if I have an idea and then I have to convince 212 other people to vote for it, that might not work so well. Yeah, yeah it depends Depends what level of government. Um, state level, you can get quite a few things done. Yeah, and I've gotten active the at the state level. Okay. Uh, I actually helped draft a bill that's going to be, uh, knock on wood, passed this year. Uh, that's going to expand opportunities for um, food producers to go to market with some of their products. It's, a, okay. it's an expansion of what's called our HBV bill, home-based vendors. Okay. Um, and I've done a little bit of lobbying work with Indiana Farm Bureau on, on agriculture and food topics. So, yeah. That's cool. Yeah, so you're, you're already in there. Yeah, try them. That's Good. great. Good. Oh, this is such a fascinating story. Yeah. Because I, I didn't know this be. much about farming. And like you, you, you hear, oh, we need to find a new way of farming. You know, we're running out of supplies. And, you know, bad on me. I don't look as deep into that as maybe I should. Got a, lot of, a few things going on. But um, in terms of air quotes, better ways of farming yeah. for more sustainability. I, yep. I have, there's one, I don't think, I'm not going to say it right, like aggregate or a different way of farming with different water filtration systems. Mm-hmm. What Do you know what which one I'm leaning towards? Like there's, a, people are trying to farm differently for longer sustainability because yeah. the way that we farm currently from regenerative. understanding. Yes. Regenerative ag. That yeah. is it. Yep. Aggregate. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, what what is that? Uh, have you looked into that? Um, should farmers be trying to change their ways? Uh, how, how do we? The regenerative regenerative ag movement is is really fascinating, and, and I'll boil it down to this. So, we are we realize that we have too much carbon in our atmosphere, um, and it's more than likely coming from our use of fossil fuels. That's one of the things we keep pointing at. So, we want to try and reduce fossil fuel usage. Okay, I buy that. Great. I, I, I don't know. I don't have an argument against it. But what's oftentimes 
ignored in that discussion is where the carbon should, it's called carbon sequestration, okay? So uh, the green leaves of, of any tree or any plant, it's primarily made of carbon. Cellulose is a carbon base. That's what makes up plants. It's, it's carbon in that, okay? If you go right now, it's, it's December. You drive on any interstate for hours and hours in any direction. What are you going to see growing? Trees. <laughs> Nothing. You're going to see bare dirt because we grow corn, which is about an 85-day crop. And soybeans, which is about a 60-day crop. How many days are in the year? 365. So we plow up thousands and millions of, of acres across the U.S. And then we photosynthesize on those acres for 80 days at maximum. The longest season grain we grow in Indiana or in the U.S. is corn. And it's an 80-day season. Oh, my gosh. Re and regenerative ag says, let's plant grass, clover, legumes, um, forage crops that are permanent, that 365 days a year are photosynthesizing, and as they grow, they are pulling carbon out of the air, because that's that is where the plants get their carbon. They don't pull carbon up from their roots. Their roots just pull up water. They pull carbon out of the air, mm -hmm. and so the more plants there are, the more carbon is being pulled out of the air. And most of the soil in in the world now that's producing grain is barren, 280 to 285 days a year. So that's the idea behind regenerative ag is don't just look at where the carbon is coming from, how it's making its way into the atmosphere. Yeah. Look at how we're not pulling it out any longer. Right. Okay. Look at how we're doing nothing to pull it out any yeah. longer. So do you think that's a viable option? 100%. Okay. 100%. Um, regenerative agriculture focuses on uh, the permanence of the soil, uh, permanence of a biodome in the soil. Um, it, it, there, it goes beyond that. It goes into like the microbes that need to live in the soil. The more that you leave the soil barren, you get... You lose your subterranean uh, microbes and fungi that live down there that are healthy for the soil. But in general, from a carbon standpoint, that's the, the main impetus behind it. And what I would say to, to anybody listening who goes, well, I have, I've, you lost me 30 minutes ago. I mean, what am I supposed to do about USDA policies? What am I supposed to do about, <laughs> about uh, legumes growing on barren fields? What does this have to do with me? The, the thing about a farmer is um, they are the steward that, that mediates your relationship to the soil. I'm going to look at both of you guys. I'm going to guess you're not farmers. No. <laughs> you don't have Very acres of land that you're responsible for. But the people who feed you, directly or indirectly, that person me mediates your relationship with the soil, okay, and with our planet. And you need a good mediator. That's the idea behind local food. You need to know who is growing the food and how they do it mm -hmm. to be able to trust the mediator that you've put between you and the soil. Otherwise, the, your relationship with the planet is going to get pretty bad because your mediator doesn't know what he's doing. Okay. And he's he's soiled your relationship with the planet that sustains you. Mm -hmm. I'm not telling everybody they need to grow their own food. They need to even know everything about it. Just have a relationship with the people that are feeding you. Know that person. Know their character. Know their trust. And they're going to be taking care of the land the way that you would trust them to. That's, I think, the way that our food supply should work. But right now... We let Walmart mediate the relationship between us and the soil. Right. And they don't do a very good job. <laughs> yeah. is, there, is there anything specific, like, talk about the education behind the mediator. Is there anything specifically that Market Wagon is doing to, I mean, obviously you have a place where people can go to connect with farmers and, and buy their food, but is there anything you're doing to educate people like Colin and I about that, like, through your business? Yeah. 
Well, the number one thing that we're doing is making that connection more than just commerce. So on Market Wagon, not only can you see the name of the farm and like read their two paragraph bio and see a little picture of their cute kids and then, <laughs> and then, and then buy from them because their branding is so good. Um, you can follow your favorite producers. Um, you'll receive, then those farmers are posting, they're, they're, com, they're giving updates from the farm, just like social, it's, it's a social platform. It's like yeah. social media where you have connected to them. They can message you. You can uh, directly message with the producers. So if you have questions oh, wow. about how it's produced or what do you feed your hens or how do I cook a chuck roast, right? You can, you can message the, the farmer. Yeah, that's awesome. Right. And so you're in a direct connection with that farmer far beyond just transacting online. Okay. We, we're building that connection that way. And then aside from that, we have uh, our marketing team does a lot of vendor highlights. We try to interview the farms and ask them about their relationship with the soil and, and publish that stuff. And the most recent initiative that we've had is my podcast, which is called More Than a Mile, where I am interviewing food producers so that the, the people who are buying from them can understand their heart for why they do what they do and how they become that you know, steward and, and mediator for our consumers. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's awesome. How long has that been in the works for? Uh, we've just recorded our fifth episode. We, okay. we went nice. live like just a few weeks ago. So we're just getting going on it. Very cool. Yeah. yeah. You that's liking great. it? Podcasting? I am. Yeah. yeah I am. Fun. It's fun. Um, say someone is, you know, they're listening like, okay, next time I go to the farmer's market, I'm going to actually talk to these people rather than I'll take this and that. And bye. Yeah. Uh, what... What's a good maybe one, two or three staple questions yeah. that can help get them by in that type of conversation? Like if Tim and I were like, I'm going to go talk to that person selling apples, but mm -hmm. I don't know what to ask them about how they take care of their apples. What are a few? Ask questions. Ask, uh, I'll give you a few questions. Yeah. The, the first thing is don't ask them. So you're certified organic, right? There's nothing wrong with organic, but it has become, uh, it, now you're not trusting the farmer. You're trusting the USDA with a badge that says, I vouch for the farmer and you don't have to ask them anything else. Right. And it, it then it needs to become costly. And so most farms, small farms who are doing things really, really right the way that you would want them to can't afford to become certified. So well, you, it, they it'll guide you in the wrong way. Or organic things. They just don't exactly. pay for the... Right. The so badge. what are the... So then the question is, what are the organic, quote, I'm using air quotes, the organic yeah. things that I should be asking about? Ask them about how they handle pests. They're raising... Um, uh, produce. So what do you do to keep weeds out or what do you do to keep bugs from damaging this produce? They, they, if they'll answer that question with describing the ecology of their farm, not, oh yeah, we use this chemical called seven and it kills everything that walks. You know? Round up here, and, little bit of there. Right. A <laughs> little bit of, exactly. <laughs> Some DDT and Agent Orange and there you go. Um, ask them what happens with the byproducts off their farm. What do you do with the waste products, with with damaged produce, or if you're you're talking to a, a livestock farm, what happens to the manure? What are you doing with that stuff? Mm. You'll find out that that the manure either feeds their hay fields, or if they're an integrated farm like ours is, we raise chickens and goats and produce, and we don't have to put any extra nitrogen on our our um, garden because chicken manure is loaded with nitrogen. Oh, gotcha. Right. So that's what happens with our the animal byproducts. Okay. Ask questions about the ecology of how their farm works. Yeah, not what certifications they have. And I'm sure they'll be refreshed with a question like that too. Like, oh, another organic... 
What'd you just ask me? <laughs> and, and then they will talk for 20 minutes. Yeah. Because yeah. they love it. Yeah. They love what they do. Right. If they didn't, they would go to truck driving school. Yeah. And nobody <laughs> yeah. farms because of the money. Okay? Yeah. 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 <laughs> That's awesome. Mm-hmm. There you have it. Um, you know, you're talking about other crops and how do we get carbon out, things like that. What are farmers, how are they looking at things like hemp? I know hemp is kind of on the up and up. It's, you know, more legalized in, in more states. How are they utilizing hemp? Because we can use it, you know, for paper, yeah. for food, for animal products, like so many different things. Um, and I know those are very absorbent mm-hmm. plants too. Like they use them in Chernobyl in You're Russia. Right. Well, exactly then they right. sell their cheap uh, products to your gas station CBD and that's how we get things like that. But what what's the view of hemp amongst the farming community? Um it's mixed, right? My opinion of, of hemp is that it needs to be a part of the ecosystem. You know, if we're talking about diversifying what you grow, hemp definitely needs to be a part of it. The concern I have, and and I actually, my second podcast guest, his name is uh, Nate Parks, Silverthorn Farm. Okay. And I would encourage you guys to listen to that episode because that'll okay. tell you the, the, the ales of the hemp story. Um, it it came out and it was heralded as the savior of, of farming. This is what we need to do. This is the next big thing. And there were promises made and there, the market's going to be there and the USDA will make sure that it gets sold for you and we will subsidize this. And Nate almost lost his whole farm because hmm. it wasn't ready. And, it, and there's no one crop will do that. That's not right. the way this works. That's right. not farming. So don't chase after it like it's going to be the next big thing because uh, that's what then everybody, that's what happened. Everybody grew hemp because they were all told this is going to be the next big thing. Yeah. And then all of a sudden the USD is like, whoa, it's more hemp than we thought we were going to buy. And then they just pulled the rug out and they, and they stopped it. So um, it's not the answer. It's going to be a part of the answer. It, it needs to be a part of a, of a crop rotation, maybe. It needs to be a part of the, the vast, biodiverse mix of things that farmers are growing. But monoculture is how we got here. Got it's it. not going to get us out of it. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Yeah, because hemp, it's, you know, people on the, the green rush, right? Yeah. So I was just curious how, how it's viewed. But yeah. yeah, I'll have to go listen to that uh, that episode for sure. Because you never know if someone le- leaves it too long, then it becomes the female plant. Then you have, you have marijuana. So I don't know if any farmers ever had that issue of like, oh, shit, like this is no longer... But I think the, the different strains of the plant itself dictate how much THC it's going to really produce. Yeah, they... Then there was an era where people were trying to market smokable hemp, which was just like buying the cheap stuff. Uh, <laughs> doesn't, I, don't know, I don't know why anybody would smoke that, um, I guess, for the CBD. Guess but there was this hemp, man? <laughs> right. Right. That's funny. And you, you wrote a book, too. This, the, mm-hmm. is, is it... It's titled the same as your podcast, right? Correct. More than a mile. What America needs from local food. Okay. And you, and when did you write that? I wrote that about three years ago. Okay. Thirteen uh, or seventeen. Yeah. Gotcha. And is did you realize that that was going to turn into a like? Is the no. podcast built on the same principles or? Yeah, it is actually, but okay. I didn't know it was going to lead to a podcast. Okay. I just wrote it because I had so many people always asking me, "Well, why local food and 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 what does this mean?" And and so I really wanted to get my ideas out there okay. in one consolidated way. So it, it traces the history of our food movement in the U.S. into industrial. The reality is, um, the way we eat today in our supermarket system in the U.S. is anthropologically unique. 
No, we, we don't know how this will end. No society has ever done this to itself for an extended period of time. And we're really only 40 years into this experiment. And it doesn't seem like it's going all that well. But the majority of the world eats the way that Market Wagon teaches people to eat. The majority of the world is eating from their community. We thought we had some brilliant idea and, and we invented something brand new and threw out a lot with it. We don't understand what we lost when we destroyed our local food supply. Interesting. And, go ahead. Well, no, you can go. I was going to oh, say, awesome. you, you made that point of how we do that. If you go to like Europe, mm -hmm. they pick up groceries for that night's dinner on the way home from work. They right. walk past, all right, there's my bread. Tight supply. There's my veggies. There's my, my meat. And, you know, obviously there's something to be said about that yeah. of, of getting it fresh day of one. You have less chance of getting yeah. sick, bacteria, things like that. But then, yeah, you have those conversations. You have they much know less they're... processed food when you're getting it fresh like that. I was, I was listening to a, a guy from Cargill who uh, Cargill is a, a large corporation that deals with imports, exports of agriculture, and among other things. So they're a product of this conglomerate uh, or consolidation of our agriculture and this panelist was talking about, um, you know, feed, they all talk about feeding the nine, which means the nine billion people that we expect to have by 2050. Oh, okay. and he said, you can't feed the world on backyard chickens. And uh, I didn't have the bravery to do it, but another gentleman who was there who is like-minded to me, he's like, it's how most of the world eats right now. Like, <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> right? I mean, <laughs> what we're trying here in the U.S. is is the unique thing that nobody else in yeah. the world, everybody else is watching us and they're like, about that yeah right like i've been to indonesia i've been to india my wife's been in ukraine you the world eats off backyard chickens <laughs> we're the only ones that try to pick it up at costco for 4.99 off a rotisserie yeah yeah oh, that's funny and that was kind of what i was gonna like ask is like looking at the bigger picture going forward like do you think there's gonna be like the consolidated agriculture like do you think they know that businesses like yours are are, are growing like do you see any like pushback or like any challenges to, like in the future that could like threaten that or yeah first of all we're always going to need some large-scale grain um, production and, yeah. and some of the innovations that have taken place over the last 30 years have been positive and we can produce grain very efficiently now that's good we need those grains um, for a lot of different applications fantastic but we can't only do that and um what we're seeing now is you're not going to get like my dad is 67 years old you're not going to he's not going to go become a cucumber farmer <laughs> it's not going to happen Right, but they're so fresh. But they're so good. it's the people in my generation and below who, um, in order to stay on the farm, they, there's not enough farm. There's not enough income left for for this to go on to the next generation. But what I've been seeing my peers in, in agriculture do is go, all right, Dad, you've been farming two thousand acres of corn and soy. Can I have four? And and on those four acres. I'm going to build a market garden or a produce farm or a sweet corn stand. And I've seen people make on a, a tiny, tiny fraction of the large scale ag that their the last generation was farming. They'll make an income for their family. So wow. we're seeing it in the, it's skipping a generation is what's taking place or maybe skipping two, but it's coming. And, and that's really how this is going to be taking, you know, taking shape in our agricultural communities over the next 20, 30 years. Yeah. Is, is carving back some. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense, though. Yeah. 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 And on Dad's Farm, what we've done, speaking of regenerative agriculture, is what had been, when I was a kid, was corn and soy. When my dad was a kid, it was pasture. And now it's pasture again. Okay. Fencing it in, planting that permanent forage, clover, ryegrass, 
and uh, or or uh, orchard grass and Timothy and um, grazing beef and pork on that land regenerative agriculture it's amazing so on your family's farm have you set aside a little land to do that the market you know idea you're talking and yeah my wife and and, uh kids and i we farm uh just we have 20 acres we only farm about three and a half of us we have a three and a half acres that we farm where it's it's produce and small-scale uh chickens that's great uh and where dad's at dad's out in the country where the land price is lower, right? And the, the things you can do with that land are different than you can near the city. And so that's where we're fencing it in and raising the large-scale livestock, the um, beef and pork, on pasture, outdoors, not confined, rotationally grazed. That's awesome. Yeah. Where can I buy your farm's products? Marketwagon.com. I guess that was a really is dumb it, question. Yeah. Is it, <laughs> that was a really, I was like, oh, what, what stand are you guys on? What, uh, what farmer's market are you guys go to? Didn't you, uh, didn't you created this? Yeah. Yeah. Didn't you combine your, your farm with your, your dad's farm as like a vendor for Market Wagon? Yeah, we, we are partnered together. If you okay. Will. Yeah. Yep. So, and I read it too. Yeah. Try again. Jeez. That's all right. Yeah. You can find my eggs and produce in season. We also have a roadside stand um, over off of 86th Street, 86th and Sergeant Road, where we sell stuff on on our system um, to our neighbors and and, uh, uh, the community around us. Mm -hmm. Done deal. But almost all of of what we produce is sold on Market Wagon. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to have to change my groceries because I'm big on you are what you eat, ate. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. yeah the, that we've yeah. talked about that on our show is that yeah. next step yeah. of what did what do you eat? What's in that system? Mm-hmm. Yep, because um, that's that's what gets people all the inflammation. I mean, you know, the yeah. list goes on. Yeah, is it is it pretty special though from from your perspective to to grow up in a, in a farming family and, and be able to to bring that back to to your father who kind of raised you yeah. and yeah yeah it, it's hard to describe it it's it's just um, it's unreal mm-hmm. yeah. There's a, there's just a connection that farmers had to the land that, um, that it's difficult to explain or, or relate to, uh, but, you know, this is the land that my grandfather spent his entire life making sure that the soil was healthy, and my dad did, and and it just, it's like going to a funeral if you put it up for auction, you know, when when dad passes away and you just sell it to whoever the next biggest conglomerate is. Oh wow! Yeah. You know, it's not how that's supposed to go. And hoping they keep quality up. Yeah, that they won't. They don't care about the land. They level the house, they level the barns, and they tear out the fence rows and farm as much corn and soy as they can. Good grief. Yeah. Just keep what's not working, keep going. Yeah, get big. <laughs> if it, we're not making enough money this year, it's because we didn't grow enough. we got to get bigger. Mm. Bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. Yep. We'll oh. make it up in volume. <laughs> <laughs> and now it's so interesting to think about how you're saying how one thing affects another if, if you fix you know, what's your how much soy and corn if you scale that back grow yeah. some other things how much less products finished meat products to consumer will we have with where they don't have all the uh, the steroids the mm-hmm. this and that so and and it's not just you know we've talked a lot about what's wrong and yeah. and there is a lot and I, I want to be um Cautious, because the, the reality is what we're building with Market Wagon, the reason we're building it, you know, we didn't decide to go out and build a, an activist system trying to change laws and make mm-hmm. it illegal to have CAFOs. And, right. No, we're building right. the, the positive alternative yeah. so that there is a way to, to opt out of this industrial ag system 
and grow a few acres of produce or fence in your hundreds and hundreds of acres of corn and soy and plant pasture there Mm -hmm. and, and regeneratively raise livestock on it. Right. And, um, and do it viably because the market now exists because you have a place where you can get this product sold. So that's what Market Wagon does. That's the key thing that we do is we make a positive alternative so that when the 18-year-old who's listening right now who's, who has grown up on a farm and he's all he's known is driving a combine and a tractor because they just do large grain, you can think to yourself, there is another option and I can make a full-time income doing this a different way and it's more attractive. And if we just create the positive alternative, that's key. We can't yeah. just go out and talk about what's wrong with the food. Right. We've got to create a positive alternative, and that's what yeah. we're doing. Solve problems. I love that. That's right. Yeah, this is fantastic. Uh, Tim, any other questions for, for Nick? I want to make sure we cover everything. Mm-hmm. That, uh, I know we've hit a lot, a lot yeah. of good stuff. I think I asked what I wanted to ask. I think I'm good. Uh, Nick, anything else you want to... So we always have like our last question. We ask one question to everyone, but want to make sure that we cover everything you want to. Um, I know we still got time, but uh, yeah, I'm... I might be tapped out too. So anything else you want to want to throw in the mix, make sure people know about? Um, no, we've covered about everything I can think okay. of to talk about. I appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. Yeah. We yeah. appreciate your time. Um, you guys on social, social medias, where do people find you? Yep. At Market Wagon, pretty much everywhere. Okay. MarketWagon.com. All right. And that's where you can also find Nick's family's products to buy as well. Right. <laughs> Got that taken care of. Yeah. Um, so Nick, we always like to ask people uh, how you'd like to be remembered. So when it's all said and done, um, you're already kind of leaving a legacy, leaving your mark. But how do you as Nick want to be remembered when you're gone? When I'm gone, how do I want to be remembered? Well, um, hopefully not too, not too many people. <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't want it to be about me. There, there yeah. shouldn't be a, a, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs have a celebrity uh, complex, right? They, they want to, they're sure. in it for fame. And, and if I'm honest, I, I sometimes that would sound nice, but... Um, I, there needs to be more people doing what I'm doing so that my efforts alone are diluted among a sea of people who have started, you know, joining the movement. Mm-hmm. The The phrase that came to mind when I was thinking about that is it's it's uh, biblical. It's uh, to to be remembered as somebody who uh, loves mercy, does justice and walks humbly with my God. Um, I have a faith and I don't make that like overt in the middle of it. We didn't talk about that the whole time on this podcast. We you can. Ask me, I love Jesus. Let's if, talk faith. <laughs> if you ask me how I want to be remembered, yeah. I hope it's about more than just uh, business, entrepreneurship, and food. Um, that is how I'd like to be remembered. Fair enough. Great. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. All right, Nick. Thank you so much again. Thank you. For giving us some of your time this afternoon. We appreciate it. Uh, it's, it's amazing what you guys have built. Uh, it's Thank really you. awesome and obviously a good alternative to, to a lot of issues. So keep solving problems man thanks for helping me to spread the word yeah absolutely thank you all right guys thanks for hanging thanks for listening until next time we're out of here